and welcome to this week's Maternity and Midwifery Hour. My name is Sue MacDonald and I'm the curator for the Maternity and Midwifery Hour and the Maternity and Midwifery Festivals and it's my pleasure to be chairing this session tonight. We're actually on week 11 of series 11 of the Maternity and Midwifery Hour and we're, I'm delighted to be joined by Nikki Wilson and Dr Rebecca Moore this evening but I'm just going to put Nikki on the spot to ask her to share her moment of the week because we always do that with our guests. So good evening Nikki thank you so much for coming this evening please share with us your moment of the week. Well thank you for having me um <clears throat> It may sound all a little bit too tied together, but I happen to be speaking at the Maternity and Midwifery Festival yesterday, as you know, Sue, where I met you, and um, I shared my lived experience around postnatal PTSD for the first time in a long time, in fact, because actually, whilst my story is very tied up in my reason for doing this work. Mm. We now mainly centre other people's stories, um, rightly so. So it was quite poignant, powerful um, and moving for, for me to be able to share that and, and, and hear people listen and hopefully take something on board. So that was definitely my, that's the first thing that comes to mind as my moment of the week. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Nikki. I think actually uh, your session as I was privileged to share the, the platform with you, um, was very inspiring. And I think that will resonate with a lot of people as their moments of the week, which is quite an interesting turnaround, I think. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now I'm just going to do my usual little spiel. So please forgive me. Um, just to share the, the maternity and midwifery hour and where we were born. And of course we were born with the pandemic lockdown of March 2020, which seems a lifetime away, a long time it since. And um, we really, at that point, we realized we couldn't, midwives couldn't meet, student midwives couldn't meet for continuing professional development and education opportunities. We couldn't network. And we felt it was really important for that to still take place. And, and at that time, people were very concerned about, obviously, about um, COVID and what the implications for maternity care were um, and for the professionals caring for people with COVID within the maternity services and the changes that were required. So we put a lot of material in at that time on COVID and we've not had a lot on COVID recently, but we've gone into different areas and we've got as far as series 11. And I'm planning now series 12 and got some delicious things as well. I can promise our regular audience. For those of you who are new, welcome, big, big welcome. And I hope you enjoy this evening and find it useful and inspirational. I think you will. Um, also, just to say it's all free. And if you have missed anything or you, you've just come tonight and think, oh, this is fantastic, I'd like more, everything we do on the Maternity and Midwifery Forum is recorded. All the festivals, every moment is recorded and you can access anything for free. Now, if you want things in a kind of more streamed way, we have box sets and we have subscriptions. We also have a lovely institutional institution uh, subscriptions which are even better because it means your trust or your health board 
or your in your university will pay for the subscription, very reasonable rates, and then you can access it for free, which is fantastic. So that's very good. And this is a fantastic resource if you are doing especially midwifery revalidation and or if you're doing a project or dissertation or any anything like that you can get all the information you need up to date and if you find that there's something missing get in touch and we'll get it organized for you so i just also want to say a big thank you to our midwives and our student midwives busy times it's Actually, it's chilly times too, but it's a busy time at the moment. It's never not busy. Just remember, I know there's a lot of talk about service services not being as good as they can be. You're doing brilliantly at a really difficult time. You really are. And we don't have waiting times. The lovely Neil Stewart said that to me the other day. We do not have waiting times because we can't. Women carry on getting pregnant, having their babies, and we carry on providing care. We just we need to do some good, better care somewhere. But we can do that and we will do it because we've been doing this for a long time. So good on us. And thank you to our midwives and our student midwives. And also, and I know I always say this, but I really, really mean it. Look after yourselves just the way you look after your women and your babies and the families. Look after yourselves because you're important. OK, end of lecture. I'm off my soapbox now. I haven't got a huge amount of news because my whole brain is being focused on the Maternity and Midwifery Festival, which we had yesterday in Edinburgh. And guess what? I'm still here. I'm not stranded. I'm just taking a day or two to look at Edinburgh because it's a beautiful place. It's cold, very cold. But I had a wonderful time in at the festival. We had some absolutely fantastic speakers and so if you have registered to attend, you should be able to get your box set for that. Fantastic. We had midwifery in Scotland, practice and education with the lovely Jackie Lambert and Fiona Gibb from the RCM. We had Leah Hazard talking about her shaping your own, own career as a midwife. And then we had Kate Forbes, MSP from Scottish Parliament. And what a fantastic ally for midwives she is. Fantastic. Shared her whole, her experience and her perspective of being a mum and experiencing fantastic continuity of care during a very difficult time for her. So thank you very much to Kate, but also how mar marvellous to have that kind of circle of care coming through. And we had the preceptorship framework for, for Scotland, which was fantastic as well. And we had the Remain study with the lovely Jill Moncrief and talking about some of the issues that make midwives stay and midwives go. And we also had holistic care um, and listening to women and families from Marina Wallace. And then we had birth trauma. And I was privileged, as I said a bit earlier, to have two fantastic speakers. And one was Nikki Wilson and one was Justine Leach. And really very poignant, very actually very painful, but very thought provoking. And I think the messages that I got was very much, we just don't know what women that we're caring for have experienced. And we need to be very sensitive and tuned in. And I'm so pleased that Nikki and Rebecca Moore are coming to speak this evening and just help us through that little transition there. Fantastic. I'm also just highlighting this lovely little book that I bought yesterday. 
say no to bullying in midwifery. It's a bit of a trigger warning, and it's it's a, an accounts of bullying in midwifery, um, and it's a very powerful book. But we need to get it out of the book and into practice, like many bits of research and, and sort of practice development. So, and it's cold. <laughs> now, this evening, we're going to be looking at preventing birth trauma, and regular uh, listeners and watchers will know that we have looked at birth trauma from various different perspectives. We've had a lot of fantastic speakers to get us to think about the effect on women and families and on midwives and practitioners also. And this evening, we're going to have two guests who are going to talk, walk us and talk us through actions and the sort of tips and things that we can use and be aware of as health professionals to reduce birth, birth trauma and actually be very aware of the experience of women. So I'm going to start with um, welcoming Dr. Rebecca Moore. And Rebecca works as a perinatal psychiatrist in London. She mainly deals with infertility, pregnancy loss, anxiety, depression, OCD and trauma. And she's got experience from over 20 years and she's developed a particular interest, thank goodness, in birth trauma, which has led her to found the annual birth trauma conference and make birth better with Emma in 2018. So I'm really delighted to just pass over the screen to Rebecca Moore. So just take a minute or two for that to happen. I hope it'll happen seamlessly with our lovely Angelo in the background, making sure everything's as smooth as can be. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today and a little bit about Make Birth Better as an introduction to this talk. Um, so we are a collaborative of parents and professionals and our goal is to aim suffering around birth trauma. Um, and we work in a variety of ways. So training, campaigning, raising education and awareness. And I'm gonna be talking to you today about birth trauma and how we can all be involved with thinking about the way we act to reduce trauma for all. So when we're talking about birth trauma, this really describes a set of variable for each person symptoms that are related to the birth, pregnancy, postnatally. It can be one event or multiple events across any point in the perinatal period. And what we really mean when we're thinking about somebody having found their birth trauma is that they have felt intensely afraid, shocked, frightened, overwhelmed, that not able to cope with the events that they're experiencing at that point. We, we are talking about birth often, but increasingly we also talk about perinatal trauma because it's important to think about the fact that for some people their trauma might not be the birth itself it might be something that's happened in pregnancy with recurrent pregnancy loss or it might be something that's happened 
after giving birth, so perhaps around breastfeeding. So we increasingly think about the term perinatal trauma rather than specifically birth trauma. Why it's important is because birth trauma happens for lots of women and birthing people each year. And we know that from lots and lots of studies that have been widely replicated across the UK and increasingly across the world, that around 25 to 40% of all people will find some aspect of their perinatal journey subjectively traumatic. So this is affecting large numbers of people each year. And we know then that a smaller proportion of people will have a clinical PTSD, a post-traumatic stress disorder. So around 8% of people will have a clinical PTSD. Often we hear people using the terms birth trauma and PTSD as meaning the same thing. And it's important to recognize that they're not, that we have this bigger group of people feeling subjectively traumatized and a smaller proportion will have a diagnosed clinical PTSD that's probably more towards the severe end of symptoms and severity. However, it doesn't matter whether somebody can be classified as having mild, moderate or severe symptoms. What matters is that how people feel and that even if you don't have a clinical PTSD, you can have significant trauma that impacts on your day-to-day -day life. We also know then that there can be associated other diagnoses. So sometimes people will have depression, anxiety or OCD. And what's most important is that we really look for trauma birth trauma, PTSD, because all of those different diagnoses need different treatment and assessment in their own right. What might be looking for in terms of when somebody's had a traumatic birth experience is we tend to look for sets and patterns of symptoms. And these are the four sort of key groups that we look for. One to three are probably the most associated with trauma and PTSD, but to be formally diagnosed with PTSD, you would look at somebody having a symptom from each of those groups. So number one is re-experiencing. That's where you're constantly replaying your birth or postnatally or around feeding. And that might be in your thoughts, in your thinking. It might be you feel you're physically back there in time. It might be that you're experiencing it again in dreams and nightmares. But it feels like a level of replaying and reliving that completely consumes you and takes over your mind. You can't shut it down. You don't want it to be there, but it keeps coming back into your mind over and over again. Along with that, we would look for avoidance. So that might be not wanting to think about your birth experience, not wanting to talk about it, or it might be not wanting to see people who are pregnant because that feels too difficult. It might be that you can't go anywhere near the hospital and you're driving a different route. So anything that reminds you, you're actively trying to avoid doing. 
And then with that classical of trauma comes a sense of heightened threat, or we might call this a hyperarousal. So trauma has taught us that something awful can happen. So we then carry forward in this sense of heightened worry and anxiety and concern that something else bad might happen. So we're scanning for risks, we're feeling very jumpy, we're looking out for things that could go wrong, we're assuming else that something bad is going to happen to us. And then the fourth group of symptoms that we look for will be sort of negative thinking and thoughts. So feeling guilty, feeling to blame, feeling that you haven't birthed well enough, feeling that you're perhaps a bad mum, feeling that everything is wrong with the world, that you can't trust people as before, that you don't enjoy things as before. So if you can see how if somebody has one of each of those groups or a mix of those symptoms, how difficult it is to be trying to also be a new parent whilst you're experiencing all of those different symptoms. And each person will have their own unique mix of symptoms. What's absolutely crucial to birth trauma, trauma, is that it is a subjective experience. And this is the classic quote from Cheryl Beck, who's an American researcher that does lots of work around birth trauma, is that trauma lies in the eye of the beholder. It's not what we think about the birth on paper or as clinicians, it's what about each person perceives to be their trauma. So each person will have a very different experience. And that can even be the case if you talk to a mother and a partner who have been in the same space, but what they find subjectively traumatic will be different. So it's absolutely unique and each person's story is valid and their own. And that's where we start from when we're thinking about trauma. So if we think about um, what causes birth trauma, there are lots and lots of different things that we know are much more likely to affect people and for them then to feel that their birth has been traumatic. So often there are themes time and time again when we're talking with people and also looking at the literature. So consent, feeling that you're not consented, that you're not informed, that you don't know what's happening, that there's a poor communication, that people aren't really involving you in discussions. It might be that you're feeling really out of control, that your pain's not being managed well, that you feel you can't ask questions. So all of these can kind of layer on top of each other. We know that if it's a very long labor or a very quick labor, that can also be linked with trauma. And then it might also be that you feel that you are at risk or your baby's at risk. And again, it doesn't matter if actually you weren't at risk, but if you feel that you're at risk, then that can become a trauma. And then also we have factors within the system that can really cause trauma as well. So it can be the interpersonal care that you receive. So how people make you feel, how they communicate with you, how safe you feel, how well looked after you feel. And also it might be that there is trauma for people providing the care. So you get this circle of trauma with 
burnt out caregivers who aren't able to be compassionate and then this is perceived as a lack of kindness and therein lies the kind of circle of trauma going on and on and also really important to think about things like structural issues about racism and um, which can play out during somebody's care so really important when you're thinking about causes of trauma to think about all these different aspects that might be somebody's subjective trauma so next we're just going to play you a short video um, this comes from our own model of what we think about how all these factors are, are interplaying and also thinking about what we can do at every step of someone's care, both individually and collectively, to try to make birth better for all. At Make Birth Better, we have come to understand that we cannot understand birth trauma for mothers and birthing people unless we look at the impact trauma has on the wider system and how everyone within that system has a role to play in reducing the impact of birth trauma. At the moment, women and birthing people are coming into what we see as a traumatised system, which is often firefighting with little space for reflection. Imagine how different it could be if birth partners felt more involved, if families were involved in the pregnancy and maternity journey, if staff felt properly supported through specialist training and reflective practice and supervision, if wider teams had a culture of support instead of blame, if organisations prioritised collaborative work, self-care and person-centred models of care, and if, as a society as a whole, we began to believe a new story about birth and supported parents in their journey. At Make Birth Better, we believe that small changes in each of these layers of the system could have a huge impact on everyone in it. And we have so many opportunities to change things. Educating people pre-pregnancy, even at school letting children know about the physiology of birth, making sure antenatal education provides informed and biased choices, including information about preventing birth trauma and looking out for mental health problems. During labour, ensuring that parents feel well supported has been demonstrated to reduce the likelihood of birth trauma. Imagine if healthcare professionals and birth partners knew how to spot signs of dissociation which are linked to symptoms of trauma. During birth, providing reassurance, positive statements and praise can make a huge difference. And an immediate emphasis on connection, information and bonding with the baby, or providing support when this is not possible, could prevent so much disappointment later. Postnatally, asking parents how they felt about their birth and offering information about physical recovery, as well as supporting the baby, could ensure that people don't suffer in silence. And not just immediately after birth, but for the whole of the first year and beyond, recognising that mental health difficulties may not emerge for many months after the birth, and often not until a subsequent pregnancy. We are missing these opportunities at the moment, but we have so many chances to make a difference to everyone involved. And the best thing is, we don't need a complicated pathway or lots of training to make this happen. We can follow a set of values in our daily practice as professionals, in our contact with other parents and with others around us. By ensuring that parents and parents-to-be are fully informed about the options available to them, and they and their bodies are treated with autonomy and respect. Knowing that a relationship with someone supportive can make all the difference, promoting a safe delivery and building a trusting relationship. As both professionals and parents, knowing that the language that we use and the way we say things have a tremendous impact. And above all else, knowing that we are all in this together, 
that birth can be a collaborative experience between all of the parts of the system working together to make birth better for everyone. So we're going to focus next on three areas, just in a little more detail, where we can all make a difference. So the things we're going to look at is advocacy around changing a system, holding in mind factors that make people more vulnerable to experiencing birth trauma, and just constantly thinking about that in our day-to-day -day practice, how important that can be and also in thinking about communication and language and how we can use words more carefully and clearly to try to minimise harm for people. So we're going to start off just by looking at advocating for systemic change and also thinking about ourselves and our own health as part of that. So we know that any of us that work within healthcare, that often the cost of caring for us is high. And there have been numerous big recent studies, the WELM study in 2019, the Indigo study in 2020, and the more recent Remain study that looked at why midwives stay or leave professions. That consistently show us that people are coming to work and being affected and have their own high levels of trauma, PTSD, work-related stress and anxiety and burnout. And this is from multiple reasons, many of which I think you can probably guess at, which is around staffing levels, around the support we get in managing our own mental health, and a pretty relentless and high workload that most people are having to contend with day in and day out. And of course, the impact for all of this is that sometimes we can't provide the care that we want to, and that can feel like a real moral injury. So lots and lots of reasons why people can feel distressed at work. And we know that, you know, those rates that you're looking at on the slide are consistently high and replicated in quite a few studies recently. So what we can do with that is that we can think about collective care, how we work together to drive change, to raise awareness of these issues and to ensure that these statistics start to change. And we've just picked out a few examples, and I'm sure you will have your own examples, or you can think of things that you're doing locally, wherever you're working. But what we've picked out here to think about, so for example, we have a campaign, the No More Excuses campaign, which is around investment into maternity services, which is often promised. Um, and we hear these kind of magical numbers, but really trying to campaign and, you know, push forward for that investment to actually happen. On the top right, you have Cheryl, who's um, on Instagram as the holistic midwife. She also had a massive campaign, um, which she took to number 10, um, fighting for change. That's just one person who ended up 
having a campaign that had over a hundred thousand signatures on it so you know she as one person was able to do something absolutely amazing and significant we often work collectively with many of our peer groups so birthrights for example do amazing work around uh, lobbying for change in maternity services as do aims and lots of other organizations and we often join together for collective campaigns because it means that the power of what we're doing is much bigger and more widely spread. And then the Maternal Mental Health Alliance, which I'm sure that many of you are aware of, do absolutely amazing work in kind of mapping out the provision of perinatal mental health services across the UK, looking at where there's gaps, driving change for uh, there to be equity of access for women wherever they're living. They should have access to the same supports as any other women living in any other part of the country. So that's just a few, but beginning to think about the kind of collective things that we can do together to promote this big systemic change. If we're thinking about, you know, for ourselves, for our own health, for how we manage that stress and workload we've talked about, I really passionately believe that we have to have that kind of support and care for us as a standard at work. It shouldn't be an add-on. We should be thinking about how we meaningfully care for and look after everybody that works within our system at every level and there, again there are numerous ways that you know different trusts and services might think of doing this so it might be something where we embed kind of trauma-informed meetings where we're you know holding in mind that lots of the people that we're working with will have had trauma we're thinking about the space we're thinking about connection we're just having that time to kind of reflect and safely ask questions together it might be in a reflective type space that needs to be managed in a kind of structured way. So there needs to be somebody kind of mediating and leading that that has the appropriate training to be able to do that. So it might be that, you know, teams sometimes might have monthly um, reflections, sorry, with a psychologist or a psychotherapist, or sometimes that might be done more informally, um, you know, on a sort of daily huddle. Um, a check-in at the beginning and end of shift. So lots of different ways that we can kind of debrief and think and reflect. In terms of debriefing, I suppose that's classically used within the NHS where there's been a sort of significant um, incident or something that's been very sort of out of the ordinary where, and that might be done immediately where people get together just to debrief immediately, or it might be done a little bit further down the line um, with a kind of structured debrief. But of course, you know, it's always about who's leading that and making sure that they have the skills and experience to be able to safely give people spaces to deflect. But any or all of these things, I think, should be embedded in somebody's every week. It shouldn't be just an occasional thing. I think we need to move towards a system where we have all these places so that we can begin to reduce that level of compassion fatigue and distress and burnout and then of course we get people staying within services and that then helps with staffing mixes as well we always talk about this slide you know sometimes 
we don't have very much time in the middle of a really busy long day, a really long shift. So just thinking about, you know, making, thinking through if you've only got a few seconds, if you've got a few minutes, you know, what would work for you? We will all have our own tools that work for us. We will all make very different lists if we were to fill in this slide, but really encouraging you to have those kind of tools to hand so that you build them into your working day. You know, I've got three minutes, so I know this really works for me. So I'm going to go and do this, whether it's taking a breath of fresh air outside, talking to a colleague, but really trying to use those tools on a daily basis can all be really, really helpful in managing our stress at work in the short and long term. So we're just going to think a little bit now about um, susceptibility to trauma. So the things that make people more vulnerable. Um, so here we have a slide and basically everything around the middle point are areas and themes that can make people um, more vulnerable to birth trauma. And clearly for a lot of people, they might have three, four, five of these that everything will be intersecting and overlapping. But this is a really helpful tool just to kind of hold in mind when that you're working with people and thinking about these vulnerabilities and how we might start to talk about them, address them, even antenatally prior to birth can be a way to reduce trauma for people. So, for example, if we think about people with a pre-existing mental health diagnosis, if they have a prior depression or anxiety, they're five times more likely to develop a postnatal PTSD. So what supports can we put in place in pregnancy to monitor their anxiety, their mood, to prepare people for birth, to try to reduce that risk? Housing, if people are, you know, not don't have a permanent accommodation, if they're being moved into different boroughs, that can have a huge impact on somebody's mental health, for example. If people have a disability, if they don't speak English as a first language, all of these things, you know, are things that we see day in, day out. So just beginning to kind of hold that in mind and think about all those different intersecting vulnerabilities that someone might have and how do we meaningfully begin to kind of look at that and address that even before somebody's given birth can be really trauma informed and really help people come into birth much less likely to then perceive that birth as traumatic. Just to touch on trauma informed care, because I have mentioned that, and I think it is a phrase that, you know, is used much more widely. Um, and I think there can be a lot of misunderstanding about that as something that we need to learn about, as something that's very complex. But in reality, I would encourage you to think about it as it's a set of values and practice that you carry with you day to day. So that kind of language, compassion, kindness, listening, and that you recognize that there is trauma within the system, both for the people that we're caring for, but also for our colleagues, and that each system has in place ways to assess and treat trauma. And again, that is both for women and birthing people, but also as um, members of staff, because we know that actually many members of staff do have high levels of trauma themselves. I think that's probably often what 
drives people to want to do this kind of work is that they have their own histories and they use those in a really compassionate and meaningful way. And what we want to do with trauma-informed services is close the gap between understanding of the service, the people who provide them and the people that we're caring for, so that everybody in the system has this understanding of trauma so it's not actually something complicated it's not something that you need to go away and learn as a kind of conceptual model it's something that we can embed into the way we care for both the people that we're looking after but also ourselves and our teams So the other thing that we're going to look at in a little more detail is about consent. We talked about that earlier as something that can be a cause of birth trauma. So thinking about this is a, um, you know, a, a more detailed pathway of care that we might think about if somebody had had a prior experience of childhood sexual abuse. So thinking about consent, you know, that we mustn't assume consent, that we need to constantly recheck with somebody about consent over time that we often perhaps do things as routine but they may not be routine for that person so thinking about how we explain things thinking about you know giving people space to ask questions checking in with people is this okay and always always allowing people to say no stop i can't that's really really important that we hear that when people say that also if we think um, about sort of black and brown women and the increased vulnerabilities that we know they have and um, that's well evidenced in the embrace reports consistently just to highlight this is, you know, a different way you might think about interacting with people and providing care. I'm sure many of you know the work of Five Times More. They're an amazing group who campaign around this and they want to kind of eradicate maternal health disparities in the UK. So they talk about these steps that, you know, we should be uh, providing for people. And they actually have one for professionals and one for people that might be using the service. So again, you know, the same themes coming through around kind of listening to people, giving clear information, um, you know, also challenging our own biases and assumptions. And I think for me, you know, the most important one is the last one around being a champion. You know, do you know what the statistics are at your trust? Do you know what's in place locally to try to change these inequalities? What could you do? Could you uh, think of a new project that you could run to monitor this? What could you do differently? So we all have to take responsibility for changing these inequalities. It's for all of us to do this work. And then here we have Bunty, who's an amazing uh, midwife colleague. So again, you know, thinking about the LGBTQIA plus community, we know that they have very high rates of trauma as a group and that they're also much more likely to be traumatized by birth and the care that they receive. So again, you know, thinking about things just through a slightly different lens, you know, thinking about how we people want what pronouns people want to use, what they want to be asked, how they want to be addressed, thinking about our assumptions again around families and the makeup of families and just kind of tailoring our care 
in a more trauma-informed way. So thinking about all the different ways in that circle that we would slightly adjust our care and think about things through each particular lens. So I'd really encourage you to look at Dante's work as well. Um, you know, and all these things are widely available um, online, you know, just for us to deepen our awareness and to be able to provide that really person-centered care. And then finally, we're going to look at communication to minimize harm. So we know that often the causes of people's trauma is the things that are said to them, how things are said, the tone of voice. And a lot of this comes from Susan Ayer's study, which is the hotspot study, which identified that with trauma, a third of the cases was due to that interpersonal care. So feeling unheard, ignored, dismissed. And people years later can remember certain phrases or conversations that they had and the way that things were said to them can cause huge trauma for people. So next we're going to show you a video that comes from our Every Word Counts campaign where we ask people to tell us some of these phrases that were said to them. Some are positive, some are negative. And this is a really powerful video um, that shows how much words have the power to harm and be a cause of trauma. So you can see how powerful that is to see some of those phrases which we hear time and time again unfortunately so the next slide just going to show sorry <laughs> sorry are we up to positive phrases i can't see the slides being loaded yeah we're up to positive phrases yeah, yeah. no no problem so here we can see on this slide the positive things that we can say and actually these are things that take a few seconds to say to people but the difference for people in terms of hearing them can make a difference about whether somebody feels traumatized or not so the language that we use is really really powerful and just validating somebody listening to somebody acknowledging how difficult that must have been saying sorry um, often people will say that was a really powerful thing for them, that somebody just acknowledged how hard that must have been. Just in terms of language, just a quick note, um, thinking about how we actually define and speak about birth. So all birth is birth, and this comes from the RCM's recent piece of work around this. So calling things a vaginal birth, a cesarean birth, um, not saying things was a normal birth or a natural birth, because that can often make people feel that they've failed. So calling it what it was for somebody can be very, very helpful and reduce that stigma and shame that a vaginal birth is best. 
just also thinking about other things to try to avoid. So giving advice that's not needed or wanted. I think anything that begins with a at least, at least you can get pregnant, at least it was early on in terms of a loss, um, you know, not talking about our story, always centering the person's story that we're listening to. And just really thinking about, you know, when we're making comments, not to judge, not to assume, not to offer advice that somebody may not want to hear at that point is also really important. And alongside the things we say, also really thinking about nonverbal communication as well. So often Often people will talk about their trauma being uh, somebody looking irritated, somebody tutting, somebody rolling their eyes, somebody standing with their arms crossed, a lack of eye contact. So the things that we are saying with our body language is really important as well. Um, so we need to think about that alongside the things that we're saying. So thank you very much for listening to this overview. And I know that we are now going to move on to some questions, um, which we're really looking forward to hearing. So thank you very much. Okay. Gosh, thank you. Well, 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 I think I need Rebecca in my pocket. I really do. That was absolutely fantastic. And, and I think it, Every, every, everything. I think the, the the key thing for me was the individualization of 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 trauma and and understanding that we might have a different perspective from the the woman or the or the partner or any member of the family, of course, because childbirth is such so linked with so, so many other people. Now I'm delighted to welcome also Nikki Wilson who we, we met right at the beginning, and you'll see she had a strong passion for driving social change. Her third sector career has been focused on uh, solving strategic challenges and building organisations, and she's built lots of things, including Make Birth Better, um, and she runs the ship, shapes the strategy for Make Birth Better, and her deep dive comes from her lived experience of birth trauma and postnatal PTSD. And I, as I said earlier, I had the privilege privilege of being with Nikki yesterday and hearing about some of her experience and, and I wondered if you wanted to add anything to what Rebecca has said which I mean it's still buzzing in my brain I've been busily <laughs> jotting down a huge amount of notes <laughs> yeah because there, I think there's there a, a lot. lot to take wasn't there yeah. a lot to yeah. take the, but there's a there's a lot and I think there is a complexity to this topic um that can feel quite overwhelming because it might appear mm. like oh it's just this kind of element of perinatal mental health but actually when you crack it open you realize mm. that we're talking to loads of different topics um mm. all I would add was you know when I shared my lived experience yesterday I pointed out a few things one of them was actually I probably did meet some of those susceptibility factors around um, <clears throat> adverse childhood experiences kind of moderate issues around mental health uh, neurodivergent brain but I don't think um, to this day even really that particularly in terms of my understanding of myself and what a professional might have seen that they 
necessarily would have put me on the list as someone to kind of you know to 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 watch mm. out for they certainly did in my latter pregnancies because it, it was all very obvious that um you know that actually mm. I was a very susceptible person um but that kind of always plays to me to this idea around universal precautions and the real fundamentals around trauma-informed care and yesterday we showed that kind of iceberg image didn't we which is mm. you know I think it it can feel very overwhelming when we start thinking about, oh my goodness, all these different groups and what am I meant to say and not meant to say? And if I can't say this, what should I say? And, you know, people getting a bit caught up in always wanting to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually the beauty of, of trauma-informed care as a, as a concept is actually about saying you don't need to try to put people in boxes because that's very flawed. There's so mm. many overlapping things. There are so many challenges around disclosure. It's actually just about treating every single person the, the same um, mm. and going the extra mile in terms of equity when it's obvious that that someone can't access, you know, if, if communication mm. isn't going to make sense in a way that it might do for another person, going that extra mile to make sure that in terms of equitable care, you, you really cover that off too. So I think really it's almost like to quell the overwhelm slightly and saying what we're really saying is that trauma-informed principles for all healthcare professionals is what we're aspiring to. But of course, we know that's hard in a system that doesn't look after the people who you know mm-hmm. matter most, really the ones who are providing the care. Well, we have to, I mean, we all have to look after each other. And I think that's what I liked about Rebecca's session because she's pointing out that midwives themselves and other people within the maternity services may have been traumatised themselves. And I love the the kind of the 30-second overwhelming strategy because I think that's a really important thing to think about. And I know that Kate Greenstock has also talked about the same sort of thing um so that was that was a lovely thing to include now i know that some people are going to be jotting down questions we've got a little bit of time i know nikki is very happy to answer any questions we've had a few comments and i'm just looking i'm looking down because i can't look the other way which i normally do to my other screen so i have a little iphone so i've got um sandra piggott is is a comment really hi sandra and she says I'm a midwife and PMA, and and that's uh, here in Lincolnshire. The PMA role is placed really well in reducing vicarious trauma. It needs to be embedded right from student midwives. We also run listening clinics, which are run by birth debrief trained midwives to ensure we get it right. So that's really good to share. Thank you, Sandra, for that. Um, And we've got another comment from Awa Hadid from Kassar. (laughs) Hello. And she says, one of the sources of trauma is the behaviour of the system. And I think Rebecca put that really well, as did you, Nikki. I think that was really helpful. Which undermines normality and physiology. We now rarely witness an undisturbed birth, creating dilemmas for midwives who feel complicit in a system which effectively does not support women and their birth bodies, nor choice. And that kind of underlines the importance of us listening to women and really understanding what they're saying and what they want from their choices. I think that's a really good comment. Thank you, Awa. And then we have Rebecca Matthews, 
uh, who's hi Rebecca and she says I'd like to know what could be done to address the stark contrast between the environment provided for low-risk pregnant women in midwifery-led units and those who give birth who birth on delivery suites I take it that you mean consultant units uh, it seems quite ableist that women who can't don't want to birth in a maternity-led unit have a second-rate experience Okay, that might be so. And then we've got a follow-up, hmm. I think, to that one. That yeah, follow-up from Rebecca. It's a very important observation, I think. Mm. Really powerful observation, yeah. So all women should have, yeah, some some um, equality and equity there. But she says, personally, I think that the difference in the way women are treated between these two settings contribute to birth trauma. And that's in, that's a really interesting issue Rebecca and also Nikki I wonder if you'd have a comment on that I mean which is the best place to give birth we could say how about home how about midwifery led unit how about consultant unit because some women may feel safer in a, a, a yeah. consultant unit of course Nikki yeah yeah what do you think well that is a big question and actually we're currently doing a, a, a piece of work looking at kind of a, a trauma-informed framework for antenatal education how do you help educators and and individuals themselves to consider what is their version of safety mm. how do we teach them that birth can feel safe that birth can feel unsafe and what does safe look like to them so I think it's understandable that we might assume that um, a birthing center looks and feels most safe because it ticks a lot of the boxes around, um, you know, kind, cosy, supported, more one-to-one -one mm. type support. And undoubtedly, I believe many, many of those things must help to reduce trauma. But as you say, there will be individuals where having the doctors present is also mm. really important. Um, I feel like that could be a podcast in and of itself. And perhaps you should do one <laughs> just on yes. that because... Yeah. It talks to so many things, doesn't it? The the low risk, which is normally the women of white privilege, are, are most likely to be the ones giving birth in the more potentially psychological safe space, and the hospitals, which tend to be more wired, less kind of cosy, um, are the place where we tend to send our higher risk. I'm putting my inverted commas around that deliberately just because <laughs> yes. of language um, yeah. people in, into hospitals so yeah I mean just fascinating I myself in my birth story went back to the birth center tr twice because that was where I you know that's where I sensed would be the safest place for me but mm. because my birth wasn't progressing it's then a half an hour trip to the hospital and that contributed massively to my mm. trauma those kind of changes of spaces and people not knowing who I was mm. and what the story was up to that point and so on and so on so yeah th there's definitely a lot in there absolutely 100 mm. percent um yeah really interesting and a key part I get I guess I know we went through and and some midwives who are listening will remember Le Boyer and Odont and, and the idea of making birth areas really lovely and cozy and softening the light and doing making that place homely the way it should be but sometimes actually it's it's us and the way you have eye contact with someone and yeah. communication and continuity there's so many different facets and thank you Nikki you really 
highlighted some of the the kind of big issues we need to be so aware of that mm. we kind of to almost take for granted fantastic mm. now there was um oh now jenny hi jenny says can you tell us more about the parliamentary group yes. because i think this was mentioned wasn't it? a couple yes. of weeks ago there was a debate yes. in the house on yep. birth trauma and yes. i know that's that's close to your heart <laughs> yes I was there. I led the standing ovation. We got told off and told to sit down in Parliament. It's very funny. Um, so I can tell you more. What I would say is, so the first ever all-party parliamentary group on birth trauma has been established, led on by two MPs, Theo Clark and Rosie Duffield, largely led on by Theo Clark. Um, and we did try to set one up at Make Birth Better. Just say that three years ago, it was harder to get off, off the oh, ground at that point because yeah. you really need someone to lead the charge, which Theo is absolutely mm. doing. And she's really leveraging, utilising, and is driven by her own deep and personal experience of birth trauma. Um, so what she has done as a result of that kind of fire passion for change uh she's she's pulled together this fantastic all party parliamentary group so there is loads going on i was sat with theo for a week um a week no an hour last week in her office kind of strategizing and talking through next steps so there's a number of organizations very closely involved if you want to be more involved the best way really is to 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 reach out um could email me anyone listening can email me nikki n-i-k-k-i at makebirthbetter.org and i can show you how to find out more um so that's probably the best way because there's a lot in there and there's a lot of interesting um things that are are going on and and you know apparently though i'm yet to see it birth trauma was mentioned for the very first time in history in prime minister uh, prime minister's questions last week too so mm. we do have yes. momentum um mm. and that is something that has has taken decades to to come but there is a sense of momentum in the moment that we we absolutely want to um mm. jump on if possible can i can i be cheeky and just go back to the comment on um birth reflection be cheeky be cheeky yeah be cheeky Thank you. so of course you know birth reflections click clinics there was a great question on it yesterday wasn't there um and it's yes, wonderful to hear that this is being you know it's absolutely part of the mix it's really just a, a call again for anyone who is involved in birth reflections clinics to if you have the time energy um and motivation just to drop me an email because we're, we're doing a really interesting piece of co-creation work where we really there okay. is currently no evidence base for the impact of birth reflections clinics on the reduction of PTSD symptoms so that piece of work is going on and at the same time we are also trying to understand what we can do to better equip the midwives because it largely is the midwives who are running these services with those back pocket of skills to help them hold safe spaces and to navigate the complexity of things that can go on in those conversations so we really want to learn from the experience of the people already running those clinics and understand how we might be able to help them with their kind of trauma skills and training to feel more confident in delivering a really effective service. Mm. So please do reach out. And, and I would like, I'd actually like, that's thank, thank you so much, Nikki. And of course, you're talking about evidence-based 
yeah. we're always passionate about adding to an evidence base. And I think also, as you were talking, I'm thinking there may be we. This is just part of the the, the toolkit that we need to. So we can't decide or oh, we've got a listening service that'll be it we don't need to do anything else and I think Rebecca really keys that for me because we need to change so much more yes. within the service for us as well I think it's really important now we, we're coming to the end and I have a few comments I've got um oh no hang on Daniela Hello, Daniela, says, can I ask, and sorry if you've previously mentioned it, but how long does it roughly take to see the changes that are campaigned about? Whoa, oh. that's a tricky question. <laughs> how about that, Nikki? It is. Well that done, Daniela. A great <laughs> question. That is a great question. And there is no answer because the timescales are really variable. And unfortunately, it depends on how close you are to the person who is close to power. And often that is political power. So, yeah. but what I will say, and I said it yesterday, and I think it is a really hopeful message we have around birth trauma is, you know, nine years ago, 2014, the year I had my, my son and suffered my postnatal PTSD, that was the year when NICE introduced birth trauma or birth as a potentially traumatizing event. 10 years before that it was categorically considered that birth could not be traumatic now within less than a decade we're at a place where birth trauma is firmly on the agenda in lots of different ways we have new trauma and loss services long may they continue rolled out across England we have you know I could give you countless examples of things that are going on of course we've talked about the APPG in parliament as well so <laughs> let's say a decade <laughs> to get to where we are now I I don't know I I'm a hopeful person but the tide definitely is changing you know you must hear it all the time Sue this, this mm. these words trauma-informed care they're being mm. banded around a lot we don't generally understand quite yet what they mean for us but there is an appetite and an understanding that there is a lot about maternity in particular perinatal experiences in particular that hold the potential to be really distressing and probably always mm. in fact not probably always have been but we've just lifted the lid and now mm. we've realized we really need to do something about it so can't give you a time frame come on board with make birth better and let's just see <laughs> but I think I'll say to Daniela it was good question good question yeah. it, it's you know we could say how long is a bit of string because sometimes it's that difficult but we'll start with thank you Nick another one uh comment rather than question this is sandra pickett says within an obstetric setting you can still ensure you create a safe and sacred i love that word sacred space just reassuring a woman that's at her space and you will knock and ask permission and come in goes a long way that's absolutely so sandra thank you for that one and kate frith Hi, Kate says, read two settings, models like Albany and caseloading would be able to follow alongside women's choice of birthplace or where they're allowed to uh, give birth. That's fabulous. Now, we are we are coming to the end. I do also have to say a big thank you to Megan Tanner from Arizona, who's made a donation to the channel. Thank you so much. That's so kind. And it, that's that's a very nice way to end, because, as you know, we we we're provide all this stuff for free and we have all these fantastic speakers 
but it's just we can really move forward with this I think yeah. and I'm I don't feel I think this the birth trauma has a potential for sounding very depressing but actually it's this is inspiring because we can really make a difference for women and their families and also for ourselves in what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So thank you so much to Rebecca and so so much to Nikki for joining us this evening. Now, we've got um, a thank you also to Angelo in the background, who's making sure this is all going to be put into beautiful um, access form for the podcast at six o'clock in the morning on Friday. Oh! And then on um, next Tuesday, so it's ready to go out. So if you miss any bits, you can re-look re at it. I think this is something you might want to re-look at to just get those things in your brain again. Also, I want to say next week we have Denise Tiran and Wendy Rowland. And we're going to look at Randall and we're going to be looking at sterile water injections in labour and aromatherapy during labour. So a little bit different. Um, and... So we'll look forward to seeing you there. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and we have look forward to having you next week as well. Take care.